Welcome to the Mixed Bag Podcast. My aim is to inform, inspire and amuse. I hope you enjoy listening and please consider subscribing for more delicious content. In this episode, I'm speaking with Christian Thomas. Christian is a yoga teacher, skateboarder and life science recruitment consultant. We talked about what inspired him to become a yoga teacher, some of life's challenges and psychedelics. Enjoy. So thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. I think when I met you, was it a couple of months ago now? I got a pep talk as usual, a really good one. But I was just starting to formulate this kind of podcast idea. And now we're here. It's great to have you on for, for the start. I'm interested in speaking to you a little bit about your background, of course, but mostly about yoga, meditation, mindfulness, I think, and like your journey into that world and maybe some of the things around it that people find difficult because whenever you speak to people it's like oh try meditation and things like this but they never seem to be able to get into it and just having chats with you is like you find it hard as well but like getting into the right mindset and using it as a tool for your own mental well-being but obviously we know each other from working together It's been nearly 10 years, I think, or something like this. So how incredible is that? And it's been quite a journey. Like we've stayed compadres in that whole time. Just a little bit about yourself, I think, Christian, in terms of like you grew up in just outside Swansea, is that right? bit further, as far as northwest as you can go, Pembrokeshire, right on the coast. And you went to university in England? Went to university in Bath, yeah, Bath University. And you did French and German together, or how did it work? Yeah, I did French, German, and European studies. And that involved, obviously, spending time in both of those countries and being on the forefront of speaking it every day. How did that actually work? Did you spend a year in France and a year in Germany? I forget you've told me this, but just kind of remind me how that happened. So I toddled off to university at 18 as like a super uncultured Welshman, you know, hadn't done a huge amount of traveling, had like a deep desire and curiosity to learn more about the world. But I was a Philistine man. I was a cretin, you know, in reflection. <laughs> like most people, I didn't have any clue what I was letting myself in for. I had no idea that I was signing up to like a big red brick university to do like a difficult languages degree. I had no idea that I'd be reading like, Camus and Kafka and French plays from the 17th century and critiquing art from the 18th and 19th century content of the European scene. I had no idea. I think I was the last generation of like the non-jaded students. So you remember like traditionally people have gone to university for like academic furtherance, haven't they? Or like Mm. intellectual furtherance. And then you had like Tony Blair that came along in the 1990s. Remember he was saying like education, education, education. And he just sent everyone to university. And it was like, that was when we were sending like hundreds of thousands of people to university to study photography when there was only like eight photography jobs or 800 year mm. jobs in the, in the UK. I think I was like the last generation before mm. that. It was like more about what you were learning and how you were learning. So for me, it did feel like I was going for academic intellectual furtherance to like, you know, expand my, my love and my knowledge of languages. But yeah, you spend one of those four years abroad. So I spent a year in Berlin, all the summers in Vizca, I'd go to France. 
So that was my first time out of like really spending time out of the UK, involved and being around people from different cultures, speaking in different languages, you know, learning the hard way, being around a table of like, you know, French or German people smiling because you don't understand an absolute word that they're saying, like feeling really, really uncomfortable. But, you know, being put in those uncomfortable positions, you know, one, it makes you learn a language really quickly, but also that helps you deal with stuff. You're in a tricky situation, feeling uncomfortable. You don't really know how to navigate your way out of it. And you just have to figure a way somehow. I felt university taught me about life more than it taught me about actually what I was learning. Yeah, I had a similar experience. If I had a chance to go back again now, I'd probably choose something different. And, you know, as now I approach my 40th year or in my 40th orbit, I'd quite like to go back to university, but like study something interesting. No, it's funny, like the journey you go on in life, like kind of, it's like I've got a great pulling towards history now and psychology. And maybe it's like you have to go on that journey to get where you wanted to be because at school or whatever, I was a bit kind of like against that because it, I felt like there was a lot of essay writing. <laughs> yeah. I think in a way it's like who your teacher is as well. I became interested in biology because I had a great biology teacher and it was just like, right, it kind of sold me that dream of like, right, I'm interested in science and biology and that's the route I went down eventually. Yeah. Um, but it was massively about the best teacher in the school that I had. And I don't know if you've been in the class, probably have, where he has the room. Do you know what I mean? It's like everyone is listening. It was just so interesting hearing him talk about things. And for me, that like led me down my education route. But as you said, you know, now I'd definitely be more interested in studying other topics. And it's podcast that I'm trying to do that kind of thing, but like learn from people such as yourself who'd been on a different journey. And I find now that learning through other people's experiences is huge and you get a different perspective about things and it triggers little things that you can relate to. How you did you so much so quickly just from speaking to someone like this for an hour or two hours? Exactly. Were you always naturally quite good at languages? Just a stroke of luck, really. Uh, <laughs> no, to go into a school where we did Latin, French and German from okay. like kindergarten onwards. And yeah, I don't know, probably a little bit of a natural propensity towards it. Mm. It was always something that interested me. The languages teachers at, at those schools, at that school, were the best teachers. So like you were saying there, you know, it does make a huge difference. Being stuck in like the sticks in, you know, far southwest Wales. I don't know. I think I always saw like languages and travel as like my way out, my ticket out to the ghetto. Yeah. And then like, we put a pin in skateboarding, didn't we? To, um, to yeah. Talk about. And that directly and indirectly has kind of guided kind of my intellectual curiosity, as well as like my physical and spiritual curiosity and, and development as well. We can probably do the skateboard another, another time. But I can remember buying my first skateboard when I was eight, 1990, just from like looking out of my window and seeing guys across the road, like ollieing and kick flipping down these steps. And like, I just thought, I love anything that involves dexterity and that looks cool. And I was just so drawn to it. And I can remember going with my little post office savings book when I was eight into the post office, taking out a hundred pounds. It's a lot of money back then. Yeah. Um, and buying a hate street skateboard. What a day. Well, man, it was amazing. I can remember it. I can remember going into the shop to buy it, walking back up to my house. And as I was going in my house with a new skateboard, those skateboarders who I'd been looking at for like months or years came over to me like, oh, that's a wicked skateboard. You've got to come and skateboard. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, that provided me with like endless hours of fun and like community yeah. and friends and culture and, and music right up into my like teens and early 20s. And this is all linked. Well, one, I had a big injury from coming from skateboarding, which led to the yoga, which we'll come to. But interestingly, I can remember reading in Sidewalk Surfer Skateboard magazine. I don't know how old I would have been, but there was a UK skateboarder. I can't remember his name. can't remember the magazine number. But he was saying, like, this one book has totally changed my life. What was the book? Graham Hancock, Fingerprints of the Gods. There you go. There you go. That came out in 1995, so I probably would have been, I was 13, 13, 14. Mm. I can just remember thinking in my head, oh, this skateboarder is cool. He's mentioned this book. That book must be cool. I've got to go and buy it. I can remember asking my stepsister to buy it for me for Christmas. And it's a bit of a beast. I don't know if you've read it, but you'll have heard lots about him and about it if you haven't read it. But it's a pretty hardcore book to be reading at 13 or 14. But that literally, that guided my reading up until the present day, but like just really made me interested in ancient civilizations, in history, in travel, wanting to go to these different places to see all these ruins and the traces of all these ancient civilizations. So I think that from a really young age just really sparked my curiosity and really helped develop the interest from there. Love that kind of stuff. And then I met you in January 2012 where you introduced me to recruitment. Very thankful for that. I introduced you to data managers and what they were really like. I think we worked together for nearly a year. That was it. I'm surprised that it was only that long. It feels like way longer. It feels like way longer, right? And then you took a break and did some traveling. I thought you went to Southeast Asia, but it was mainly Thailand. And I always remember you telling me that you learned a bit of Thai. Was that the kind of time that you got into not necessarily yoga but like the buddhist kind of meditative thought process or did it kindle it or what kind of like started off the yoga because we were talking about like maybe starting your own business but maybe we can just get into the yoga was it that or what kind of thing pushed you towards that yeah a couple of things so when finishing university 2000 and 2005 my mum had uh, quite bad cancer so I took a year off to care for her and like I went to Berlin for a weekend during that year with my skateboard to visit a couple of friends, only down like a set of six steps and slipped a disc in my back and um, needed an operation, didn't really want to have the operation, didn't want anyone cutting into my back with a knife and yoga helped me get out of it. So that was 2005. Right. So I was aware of it before my uncle used to do it. Yeah, just the, not wanting to have an operation on my back was like a mm. big thing for me. Um, and it just helped me, help relieve the pain, help build the strength back up in my back and like my quads. And that's where I got into like the physical side of uh, yoga. I did a bit sporadically in, in London, kind of 2009, 10, 11, but nothing serious or consistent. And yeah, you're right. We slugged our guts out in that sweatshop mm. for, uh, for many, many years and took a bit of a break, traveled Southeast Asia I did like a meditation course there. I think I did a couple of yoga courses, but it wasn't that which led to kind of my interest in meditation. Mm. I was still partying and I was still, you know, I was only 29, 10 years ago. I was still, you know, running around the place and meeting loads of people and drinking loads of beer, having lots of fun. And it wasn't until later and really reluctantly, <laughs> actually, and <laughs> at times, and kind of looked at it all in a bit more detail and started taking things a bit more seriously and started mm. looking at myself. I always felt like you were 
quite a really easygoing chap, but like had a serious side to you that was like really intellectually, like if you focused on something, you're like, you go for it. It's something that I feel I share with you a little bit, but maybe you've got more kind of intent, if that makes sense. And it's, yeah. it's something that I am growing to have a little bit more. Like when you want to get something done, you're like, right, I'm going full throttle into it. And in a way, that's kind of like what I'm not envious of that skill. I'm developing it, I think, yeah. um, in terms of doing this and expanding one's own experience by speaking with interesting people. I presented externally, like especially during that time in recruitment. But despite that kind of like intense external focus that I can display, my internal world, now like in reflection, I can like freely admit it and accept it. I was just totally panicked and scared. Am I doing really? Yeah. Am I doing things correctly? Is this all right? Am I doing well enough? Oh my God, they're going to want me to do even better. I mean, it probably wasn't even possible to do any better at work. <laughs> you know, no, no, we were smashing it. Yeah, yeah, smashing it. Top of the leaderboard, going on incentive trips, you know, all these things. And the whole time, I was like, "Is this good enough? Oh my god, what are people going to think?" I remember we talked about it, like the internal critic. Yeah, and um, I've recently been discovering imposter syndrome and such psychological, not defects, but states of mind. I'm also quite a big internal critic, which turns into potentially to procrastination but overcoming that kind of thought process or restriction is incredibly like fulfilling and like when you're going through it and you realize like oh my god was I actually like that it's kind of like wow like why was I like that I'm someone who has to understand everything but someone said to me the other day you don't need to understand it you just need to get to the other side of it and then you can look back maybe and see that but it's interesting that you said that was it good enough because like I was like, this guy's amazing. He's teaching me how to do recruitment. We're the same age. We get on. It was like fantastic for me. That's the sad thing. Isn't it? For the vast majority of people, the majority of stuff that's going around their head is just like self judgment. You know, self yeah. criticism. <laughs> you know, if you had like a friend that was stood next to you that was saying those things to you, you'd sack them off as a friend straight away. <laughs> you would. <laughs> But we just, we just listen to the internal voice doing all of that rubbish, don't we? And we yeah. accept it. And we don't realise how much that voice talks and how much we listen to it and how much it affects us. Mm. So it's really, really hard. And that's what I found from the yoga. The yoga really forces you to look at those tendencies that you have, those ways of being, oh, my God, I've got like a really harsh, critical voice. Why is that? How can I overcome that? This is perfect. We can talk about yoga and the pathway you got into it, learning and understand it. And I suppose my question would be to you, when did you realize you wanted to be more serious about this? I imagine it wasn't just a one day, just like, right, I want to be this. Yeah. Like that transition of slow kind of building up. How long did that take? And when did you realize you wanted to study it and become what you are today? Yeah. So when did I start taking it seriously? I think maybe like the start of 2017, started developing like more of a regular practice, not quite daily at that stage, but, you know, four, five, six times a week. I think a little bit of everything really, you know, it's natural when you do something a bit more that you look into things in a bit more detail, but really, you know, I was pretty much a jaded yoga student. You know, I thought yoga was just the physical practice. You know, it was literally just the contortion, the flexibility, the strength, 
I kind of had an idea, but I kind of probably rejected it in my kind of atheist, anti-religion, anti-everything, airy-fairy at that time. You know, we came in, we were in life sciences, life sciences recruitment, mm. mostly scientists, mm. analytical types, kind of shun all of that. The sky is blue and the sun is yellow, philosophical, spiritual stuff. But I went to then India 2019 to Rishikesh to do my teacher training. And, you know, just really arrogantly walked up. So I was going to just you know, smash the course, get my teacher training certificate, come back to London, buy a studio, hire a load of amazing teachers and start like an amazing yoga school. And it was only then I was like, ah, I've actually got all of this to learn. And someone mentioned to me, like, if you've had any benefit from the physical part of yoga, so just the postures, which I thought was the entirety of yoga, and it did massively help me, especially with the back, you know, literally, I was bent over double, could hardly walk to, you know, back to full fitness. Someone said, if you've had any benefit from the physical part of yoga, understand that that makes up like 0.002% of what yoga is. And if you look at that, imagine the type of benefit that you could have. So just started looking into it more, really. Started reading the Yoga Sutras, read it a couple of times. And only really the start of this year did I actually apply it to myself. You know, read through, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a yoga teacher. I've got to read all the textbooks and all the stuff, but not really actually going line by line. Okay, well, it says this. How can I apply it to myself? And that was kind of like a typical, also reflected of the journey that I had with like therapists and coaches from like my mid to mid late 30s. I was in this real difficult position, like real stuck, I think maybe 2015, 2016. Just really fed up, got myself into a lot of like negative thought patterns, just like a bit rebellious, a bit childish. I knew like that I wanted to grow up and had to grow up, but I didn't really want to put in any of the work to do it. So I like reluctantly went and saw like a coach and a therapist. And I can remember being in those in, in those sessions, answering the questions. And like I was observing the lies coming out. Literally, my mind didn't want to investigate the truth that lies behind. So this guy was like, I literally had to drag it out of it. I can remember him saying, he goes, Christian, you can keep lying to me if you want. You're paying me 200 pounds an hour. Keep telling me all these lies. And I did it so, so reluctantly, but it did move me a little bit forward. So I was less unstuck. And then from there, the yoga developed, started looking at myself, taking myself a bit more seriously. But still, I could sense there was like a huge reluctance to do any of the work, you know, to actually start looking at myself and like reflecting on who I am, how I am. Ways of being, why is it like that? What are the triggers? How can I stop being like that? When is it beneficial to be like that? Really, really reluctantly. And then last year, I um, I sought out another coach therapist, PhD level. She was experienced in like Eastern and Western psychology. So that kind of like satisfied both sides for me. And that was the first time I was like, right, I'm going to do this the hard way. I'm going to really look at myself, really analyze who I am, why I'm like that how I can improve. And I can remember even when I approached her last year, I was still kind of hoping that she'd just be this killer life coach who would just ask me a couple of questions and boom, everything would be all right. I still didn't want to do the investigative work that it involves. And I can remember thinking to myself, if it doesn't, if it doesn't work with this lady, with this coach, I'll just go to Peru and do a load of ayahuasca and I'll just pull it out of me. <laughs> It's interesting because I've been thinking along when you've been speaking there, it's like, do you think the lack of will to look introspectively is based on anything you think it's an ego thing almost what would you say is the anchor that you needed to release 
I don't know. Well, I think, one, it's hard work. You know, it takes a long time. Yeah. To reflect and to contemplate and to really investigate, to, to dive deep. It takes a long time. It can be unpleasant, you know, some of the things that you're coming up with. You know, when you start peeking underneath that, that rug that you swept everything underneath for all those years, it's not nice. Some of it isn't nice. I'm always struck by that Jordan Peterson quote when he says, that reluctance is like a bit of like rebelling against the responsibility required to achieve what you actually do want to achieve. It's brilliant. He's so eloquent when he talks about stuff like that. And it's such a part of my life in some areas that I'm like, why? I'm just like trying to figure out myself in some aspects to get over that barrier about why are you rebelling against something you know you can do? Like, what is it? It's so strange, isn't it? I mean, is the ego that strong? Yeah, I can just remember how powerful that sense of reluctance was. Even when I was sitting in that chair and paid to be there, you know, I found that person and paid to go and sit in that chair having those conversations. And I can remember my mind going, I don't want this. I don't want this. I'm going to tell a lie here. <laughs> yeah. It, we're just wasting Amazing. loads of money and loads of time. I think though, man, we just... When do we ever take a step back or even take two seconds to think about what we're doing, how we're doing it? You know, it's all really? go, 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 go. You, we literally never have a second. And think how much life has been accelerated just in the time that we've known each other. You know, and we were working at SEC there. When was that? Kind of started 2006. Mm-hmm. I left 2012. When I started there, you know, there was no mobile phone, smartphone things. You couldn't access your emails outside of work. So, you know, nine to five, that was it. You had to do all your stuff there. And afterwards, that was a clean break from everything. And also, you only had a phone, one list of names and numbers to call, and your email. Now, if you think about it, we've got like a million different platforms and tools. We, you know, we've got the email, we've got phone, we've got Slack, you've got like a couple of systems that you use, a couple of platforms. Stuff is coming at you from all angles. I reckon I observe myself now. I'm so like scattered and fragmented in what I do at work. Even in your hat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you get pulled in a million different directions. And that's yeah. at work where those companies have spent like millions implementing that technology, which is meant to streamline and make more efficient and effective what you're doing. But it's the complete opposite, you know, and that's at work, our professional lives. Our social lives are like that now as well you know, with all the different social media platforms and everything, you know, everything is super, super short form. That's why these long form things are so beneficial to people. It's hard to spend an hour, two hours sitting down and listening to someone talk about a topic. Yeah. You don't spend an hour a day or two hours a week actually sitting with yourself and looking at who you are and how you are. People have yeah. more time. It's a great point. I think people get a lot of FOMO about something that they might be missing out on, like a, a box set or something. And, have just so many things like that. Have you watched this? Have you watched that? And then the social justification part comes in where you're asking, oh, have you seen this one? What are you watching? Or, you know, it feels like that social media element is driving that as well. I'm not anti-social media. I just don't partake in it currently, like in terms of posting and having my own stuff on there. I used to, and I used to be scrolling, just like everyone else, rolling that finger up. Just seeing that and then get, yeah, it's interesting, you know, the advent of TikTok and videos and it is interesting and you can learn a lot, but that's what they're telling you kind of thing. Oh, like, it's, it's clearly making people very unhappy. That's the thing. 
Mm. I was thinking, it's polarizing. I was on the sofa watching TV and I had my iPad, my laptop. (laughs) It's like five screens. (laughs) (laughs) It's incredible, right? So just going back onto the yoga, like I'm really interested in understanding like there's different branches, but you're going to have to speak to the uneducated here, i.e. me, about the different types of yoga. As far as I'm concerned, there's hot yoga and normal temperature yoga. But in the way that you can understand it and the way you learn your pathway, you mentioned East and West philosophies as well. Are you part of a certain branch of yoga, a certain theory? How does it work when you go to learn it? Because I imagine it's a huge topic where you've got the mindset, the breathing, and then the actual physical yoga itself. Does it separate into separate branches? How does it work in terms of the setup? So, hey, this is, I'm just at the beginning of my journey as well. So I'll share what I've picked up so far. I'm still learning all the time. But I mean, if we think like in the West, how do we see yoga? Well, we see yoga as like, well, there's hot yoga, the old Bikram thing, bit of a sex pest, that chap. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then you see like, Back in the room. So there's that like, kind of like, you know, the, the fashionable side of it as well. Like all the ripped guys and girls there looking good and then you probably see like the fuddy duddy yoga as well for older people not very dynamic and i mean in the west and for me even up until like last year a couple of years ago i thought that was all the yoga was was literally just bending over touching your toes or you know if you're a bit more proficient handstands or balance on your arms that, that sort of thing but what is it what i've learned since then and what's really helped me more is that well i mean it's a whole philosophy you know one of the first lines in the yoga sutras is yoga chitta vrutti naroda. So yoga is the stilling of the mental activity. So that monkey mind that we have got going on, you know, 99.9% of our waking lives is like, oh my God, am I good enough? What am I going to have for dinner tomorrow? Next time I see that person, I'm going to say this to them in that way, you know, all of this. So yoga, according to the chapter wrote it, Patanjali, is the stilling of all of that activity. Okay, how do we start to still all of that activity and get a bit of chill time? Well, we do it by observing a moral code, firstly. So, you know, not stealing, not engaging in any violent activities, those sorts of things. More of like an inward moral code then as well. So studying the scriptures or taking time to study yourself. Discipline of study. Okay, so regularity of practice. Breathing, pranayama. Okay, so focusing on the breath. Pratyaharya, so withdrawal of the senses. So, you know, when you're sitting there trying to contemplate, you know, don't get distracted by sights, sounds, smells that are going on happening around you. Asana, so like the posture. So sitting down, whether it be cross-legged or whatever. And then it comes interesting bits. Then it's like the dharana, dhyana, samadhi. So focus, concentration, meditation. Okay. And really all of that together is just an invitation to study oneself for me, just to sit down a moment of quiet and to contemplate. Often, if I probably ask you what meditation was, you'd probably say, you know, we're sitting down and not thinking about anything. And you're in a meditative state if no thoughts are passing or you're just totally zen and chill. But for me, meditation is it's the hard work, it's the hard yards, it's the work that I was reluctant to do with the life coach or the therapist. Mm. Okay. It's observing all of that shit that's going around your mind and then actually saying, well, you know, how is that affecting me? How often is that affecting me? Crikey, how much time am I wasting by having that going around my head? 
whenever I've attempted to do it and meditation specifically, having no thoughts in my mind triggers thoughts and doing that quietening of the mind and just focusing on the breath, it takes a hell of a lot of practice. And I think that's like why most people, they don't know how to take it further because they get to the first hurdle and it's like, well, I can't quiet my mind. I can't be good at this. Yeah. But listening to what you're saying is more of a, it is quietening, but it's more what I picked up there was focus. What do you think about and exploring it to the nth degree? That's it. You know, ultimately the mind will quieten. But for me, meditation is not trying to quieten the mind. It's listening to how fucked up it is and then reflecting on that. And then Mm. once you've reflected and contemplated on that, then ultimately, you know, that will purify the mind or that will allow those thoughts to sort their thoughts to cease. But it's hard work. It takes a long time. Your recent experience of 10 days of silent meditation, which blows my mind completely still, even just saying it, you were talking about a total analysis and introspection of everything and taking everything through all the different decision-making pathways that you've had. How good you felt at the end of it, although you had a bit of a croaky voice, (laughs) you know, strangely. But taking yourself on that journey, when you got to the third or fourth day of total quietness, where'd you go from there? Like, is it a complete analysis of every decision that you've made and remembering everything? It's hard to get my head around. Well, it goes back, you know, the course was a Vipassana course. It's a 10-day silent meditation retreat, 10 days of pretty much 10 hours a day of silent contemplation and meditation. You, you know, you need that amount of time. One other time in your life would you be able to spend 100 hours meditating or contemplating or being quiet. That would take you 10 years, you know, if you were just trying to put that into your normal life. You know, you go there, 10 hours a day meditation, all of your food and everything is taken care of. So literally, you've only got your thoughts, okay? You can't look at anyone, you can't talk to anyone. So you've only got those thoughts. And when you've only got those thoughts for 10 hours a day, for 10 days, you start to realize how repetitive they are, how they affect you as well. You know, these thoughts can bring about physical sensations, you know, physical pain, the thoughts we were having. One of the key things which I, I learned there during that 10 days was, I have a tendency, one of my habits is to put a lot of conditions on the present and the future. It's like this, or it's going to be like this. Okay. And I think we can do, and they tend to be negative. Oh man, this relationship's never going to go anywhere because she's like this. Or, oh, there's no point in doing that because I didn't realise I had this sort of tendency. How that manifested in the meditation course was when I was meditating, I can remember like in the first few days thinking, my legs are, you know, after two hours of sitting down, my legs are absolutely knackered. I'm never going to be able to walk again. I'm going to get up. I'm going to fall over. Everyone's going to laugh at me. I can remember feeling that sensation in, in my legs and having those thoughts and then getting up and then struggling to walk away. And then over the course of the 10 days, I just learned to understand that that pain was kind of that sensation in my body was a direct result of a thought which is just a thought. It's not no basis in any sort of reality, okay, in any sort of like objective reality. And from that, I could feel that sensation in my leg, okay? But from then, I wasn't putting any conditions on it. I wasn't reacting by saying, oh, my God, I'm never going to walk again, or, oh, my God, I'm going to fall over. And then getting up at the end of that session on my leg being totally fine, being able to walk perfectly. 
So it made it clear to me that the conditions that I'm putting on my own life are having a direct impact, you know, direct physical impact on me, mm. let alone an impact yeah. when nothing actually happens. Learning to control your thought processes as you are on that journey. Do you think it's an art? Do you think there's a science behind it? Do you think that people can follow a process or is it completely down to how much discipline you've got to do it, like the will to do it? I think that's got to be our default state. I don't think we descended from the trees and, you know, instantly go, I've got to have, you know, screens and technology and gadgets, you know. I like to think that we were chill and in a default meditative state. That's definitely something which has been lost over the years and obfuscated. I mean, the Vipassana technique, that was essentially lost. It was the, the meditation technique of the Buddha, of Buddhism. But, you know, you could stop a million people in the street and ask them, is there a link between Vipassana and Buddhism? They probably wouldn't know that that is the very technique that he was talking about, that self-transformation from studying the sensations within the body. But, I mean, there's lots documented. I mean, it is not a foolproof method, but there's a methodology to it and to all the various meditation techniques that are easy to follow. It's just a question of taking a bit of time, you know, practice, discipline, taking a bit of time every day or every week to do it, like with anything. You know, whether you're learning yeah. a language or, you know, trying to do your couch to 5K or whatever it is, or uh, starting a new job, whatever it may be. It's definitely something that needs to be practised and you need to put time aside to do it. I've just recently started doing some more breathing exercises for 10 minutes prior to training, weight training, just to have that little close my eyes, sit down, just through the nose. So I'm not going to be a mouth breather for 10 minutes, yeah. you know, and just have that four seconds in, eight seconds out for 10 minutes. And like the first time I did it last week, I was thinking about the timer on my watch. Is it 10 minutes yet? Yeah. When I did it this morning, it was like, oh, that's 10 minutes. Yeah. And even in that short amount of time, just thinking about what I was thinking about, which was this preparation, like what am I going to want? And it just it really helped me. Most people will only do it once or twice. They'll have a go at meditation be like, oh, it's not working. What are you asking for then? Like, what is it that you actually want? And they give up like that. I'm guilty of being like that. Oh, yoga, it's not for me. I can't do it. It's not physical enough. I prefer playing football or whatever. Yeah. But thinking about it like you described it this morning, it's not just the physical, it's the mental. The physical is the smallest part. And if people understood that, then it would be great because I think there'd be a lot more uptake on it. Just finally, I just want to talk before we talk about some other stuff. Do you think there's like huge differences about the way yoga is perceived from the east to the west but obviously it comes from the east but we think about it as bikram and hot yoga and exercise and you know the odd pervert at the back of the class but is there like a huge difference between the practice in india as compared to everywhere else again there you know if we're talking about just the physical aspect of yoga or we're talking about the wider you know yoga Mm. philosophy I mean, yoga is one of the official six schools of Indic philosophy, but we know it's lost as we know lots of information from all kind of belief systems, religions, you know, spiritual practices over the centuries and millennia have been lost. A lot of the information what was lost, and it was arguably the West's desire for an interest in purely the physical postural side of yoga, which has led to its 
perhaps more recent spiritual re-emergence, one mm. could argue. Yeah, I feel like there's a certain commercialised element to it as well, but maybe that's just me, because like, whenever I've met yoga people or people who are into it, they're like, oh, it's 16, 17 pounds a class or 20 pounds for a class. And now, even having this conversation, I'm like, well, why wouldn't you invest that in yourself? Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yes, it is expensive, but you can do it at home if you really wanted to do it. You don't need to go to a class. You don't need that yeah. social tick. You don't need the Instagram photo. You don't need that Facebook check-in to go on a journey. Anyway, I just want to talk to you about probably my favorite section of the podcast, which is the link to meditation and psychedelics and stuff like that. I think you referenced it earlier in the call. You know, you might as well just bug off the... Uh, the therapy, the psychotherapy, and uh, nip over to Peru and do some ayahuasca. Now, obviously, big shout out to Joe Rogan for DMT that he always talks about. I have a great deal of hesitancy about demethyltryptamine and ayahuasca just because I'm a bit scared of like what journey it could take me on. I've done some shrooms and big shout out to your t-shirt. I've done some different shrooms in the past in Thailand, in Amsterdam. And I've probably had maybe half good trips and half a bit kind of like dodgy. In terms of like taking you on another journey, ayahuasca, we've talked about this a little bit and it's going to be my favorite thing to talk about because I feel like I could do it, but I'm a bit scared about it. And you're a bit more embracing. Do you think that's like you can or you can't with this stuff? Like, I don't know. I'm just like, if I go into it like this, is something bad going to happen to me, do you think? What are you scared of exactly? I think it's linked to what we were just talking about earlier, about the introspection, about where it could lead me and about not necessarily the analysis, but like, could it fuck me up? <laughs> I'm scared of the unknown almost. I think a lot of people are probably scared of like the actual experience of having a trip. So, you know, am I going to just like see overwhelmingly crazy patterns, you know, whether it be geometric or like scary stuff am I going to be able to handle that but I think you know the scary part of it is probably still the reluctance to really investigate yourself you know it's going to show you these areas for development or these areas to question yourself around and then you've got to actually question yourself you know it doesn't answer those questions for you and then yeah. totally, you know, make everything all right and you're totally at ease with your whole past and all your childhood trauma <laughs> out of the world. It's not like, boom, sprinkles magic dust, you know? We'll probably highlight, well, you know, you have a tendency to do this, Mark, or, you know, if you notice that you typically react in this sort of way to this sort of thing, or you typically feel this sort of way when this happens, why is that? You know, and that's not whilst you're in the trip or in the psychedelic, that happens afterwards. That's where you get a pen and that paper. People still do it just purely recreationally, mushrooms or DMT recreationally, and you know, probably don't get past that giggly stage, and that's fine. You know, perhaps others take it a bit more seriously and they write down their intentions, right? Well, while I'm in it, I'm going to try and think about this or I'm going to contemplate on this or I'm going to try and make a note of what comes up when I am in this altered state, and then I'm going to contemplate it when I come out of that state. But I think what you should be more scared of is not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Or more scared of not doing it. And it'll probably make you realise how scary it is listening to the shit that's going on in your current mind. <laughs> the sober mind. Yeah. For me, the psilocybin trip is more of a visual kind of fun 
recreational, as you said, trip to a certain point. And this is pure guesswork for me, whereas I imagine that the ayahuasca and the DMT, particularly the DMT, is a voyage to trip out city. Like you are entering potentially another plane. And people talk about when they do DMT that they have these different kind of similar experiences with the animals or the creatures that live in a different domain of existence. Like, have you done both? Ayahuasca and DMT. Ayahuasca, I've done DMT not many times and I'm still like tentatively exploring that and I get a bit more comfortable each time, but it's powerful. Psilocybin less so. But what I do like about this psilocybin is it really allows me to externalize the thoughts. Like I can actually see and feel thoughts forming outside of myself. Okay. So then, therefore, you know, when you're contemplating something about yourself or you're reflecting on something about yourself, it depersonalizes it, if you like. With the Vipassana, for example, you know, you can feel the physical sensations of some of those thoughts that are happening. Okay. And it's about recognizing that. With the psilocybin, it's like it all takes place in a picture in front of me. And there's a lot less um, reluctance to allowing those thoughts to flow and seeing what happens if I find when I'm on the psilocybin. It feels like it's a passport for you, a passport to explore, permission kind of thing, but not necessarily like you need a stamp, like you can go now, but more like giving you keys. Yeah. Giving you keys to go on a little bit of an exploration. and It's like jump wires, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's more like yeah. an invitation to get in and have a bit of a ride. This is like, have some of that. 40,000 volts going yeah. straight through the brain. The process of DMT for people that are listening that might struggle to understand what it's like. I was thinking last night, how would you describe getting high? Is it euphoric? Like, what is the actual sensation of it, the warm, fuzzy feeling? But because I've not done DMT or ayahuasca, I don't know, like, the kind of speed at which it happens. I imagine quite quickly, and then you're on a rocket ship to wherever it is that you're going. Is it, like, geometrics immediately? What actually happens? It really depends on, like, the... How is it for you? It's different each time, really. depends on the stuff you're taking, where you're taking it, who you're taking it with, what intentions you set beforehand. I mean, even when you're on it, you can bring yourself in and out of it by focus and concentration. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You don't want to allow yourself to go with it. You know, if you take something, you have like super serious conversation or something, you know, something happens and you've got to use your problem-solving faculty. For me, then the trip's gone. And it takes a bit of time to get back into it. I know the DMT sometimes, oh man, I've had like a blast on that. And before I've even breathed out again, it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm dead. I've done it this time, Chris, I'm dead. Yeah. That's it, the lights are out. With the psilocybin, it's a bit more of like a easy ride into it. You know, start feeling a bit of euphoric, the funny taste in the mouth, the bowels go sometimes. You kind of go to that relaxed stage, then the laughing stage, and then like, then more deeply into the trip. But yeah, it's kind of hard work to get into it and to stay in it. That's why the setting is so important, who you're doing it with, why you're doing it. No, I think it's like traveling. It's not about the destination, it's who you're with Yeah, in a way. I find it fascinating that people share similar experiences with the geometries and interspatial kind of stuff as well. Like people that I met a guy in Thailand, an American guy, who was, funny enough, a yoga teacher as well. 
and he had a German girlfriend and he was making DMT. And at this point, this is 2010, 2011, before I met you, to be honest, like the traveling before. And he was like, yeah, man, just take some of this black tar with me and it will take you on a massive trip. And I was like, I'm just not down for that. I think I'd need to be supervised, like have a shaman, really. But my understanding of like when you're doing ayahuasca is that they used to do it where the shaman used to do it and you used to be in the room. But I don't really understand how that actually would work, who is actually taking it. But now, obviously, they do ayahuasca camps. And I watched a, a Netflix documentary on it and they're doing it in groups of 30 or 40 people and it's helped people overcome addiction. And we're not talking microdosing. They took like a lot and it's helped people with disabilities overcome certain elements. And it just makes me think a lot of like what we were talking about earlier is a lot of it's linked to the mind yeah. and how you think about things. But the ayahuasca for me is probably more interesting than DMT to do. But I'm still like got that reluctance person mindset because I am worried about the introspection. And I think you're right. I think it's the introspection that you have to do yourself. You've got it. That's exactly it. I mean, you can do it the hard way. You can introspect just by sitting yourself down with your pad and paper. You don't need to take anything to be highlighted those things which you can then investigate around. Mm. You can do it the difficult way. But that takes a long time. It takes a long mm. time. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Or to anyone. Okay? Mm. Well, then write that down on a piece of paper and like just write around that. I mean, that's quite a painful thing to do, but also cathartic as well. And massively beneficial. But how often would anyone ever do that? Well, they wouldn't because it's bringing up something that you don't want to talk about, right? Exactly. You want to bury it. What do the drugs do? Do they put the rest of your body that's so, that's in a, a great thing. state that you don't mind then looking at it or you feel a bit more ease? That's why the MDMA therapy is so good. When you're chewing your jaw off and you're chatting <laughs> about your, you know, your life and everything that's happened to you, you don't mind what people think of you or how you're sounding. In my teens... A long time ago now, I was loving the MDMA. <laughs> I don't know whether, like, looking back on it now, whether it was an escape tool or not, or whether it was social acceptance and with the group of friends that I was in. I mean, I loved it. Uh, and there are still my friends today. We laugh back at some of the antics that particularly me used to get up to on that particular drug and how fantastic it is. I think it's the best drug and everyone should try it at least once. It's certainly in a microdose form, right? Everyone should try mushrooms once, at least in the microdosing form. And I was talking to a friend last night, and he was talking about Shatter, the almost pure THC. And he worked with a woman who knew someone in Canada who, unfortunately, he, was, he had terminal cancer, and he got some Shatter from it's legal in Canada. And his wife, who's never taken any cannabis before, <laughs> took like a tiniest amount of shatter and just was like right i'll just try this on my tongue and went on a voyage to trip out city for about two or three hours and like that journey that she went on was absolutely incredible but some people experience it in kind of like recreational drugs like i have but the intent for me now to do ayahuasca would be much different to a friday night getting off my head yeah absolutely totally different things I mean, well, you were a teenager in the 90s like me, like, so it was difficult not to do MDMA. I mean, you know, grandparents, their children, everybody was doing it. But just think how much, like, love and kindness and compassion there was at those times. Gone now. 
Come down, man. Come Everyone down, needs man. to take a trip. Do you have any plans to go to our ayahuasca retreat or do anything like that? I think not really for those reasons that we said, you know, I, I kind of like erroneously thought last year that, you know, well, if I can't be bothered to put the work in with this new therapist mm. or coach or whatever, then I'll go into Peru and it'll just do it for me. But, you know, mm. it's not how it works. Mm. You've got to do the work yourself. So when you say, like, I'm mindful about trying ayahuasca or whatever, is it that you're mindful about actually investigating yourself? Yeah. You That's know? the real question, to, right? Are you ready to have that one deep dive on yourself and contemplate absolutely everything? I think only good can come of it, but it won't just be good. You've got to accept that there might be some rough seas to get through before you get to the tranquility. Absolutely. Absolutely. But ultimately, majorly beneficial. And once you start writing some of those things down, I mean, you'll laugh because, you know, gosh, this is a huge internal issue in my internal world. And then when you've written it down on paper and a few thoughts around it, you're like, actually, that's nothing. That's like a totally non-issue. So yes, yeah, ugly, horrible stuff will come up, and a lot of it that comes up, you think you can disregard straight away because it's meaningless, rubbish stuff. Do you know what? It's just funny you said that because sometimes something that you've done or thought about in the past that's happened to you that you're carrying as baggage could be anything. You know, it could be a relationship, it could be an event, it could be something that you a wrong decision or a regret. Jordan Peterson says this, he says, you know, the worst thing that's happened to you is the worst thing that's happened to you. You know, whether that's like abuse at the hands of a Catholic priest, you know, probably the worst they can get, or whether it's some like someone spoke to you the wrong way in a playground or a teacher, you know, said something, told you you were stupid at school once, you know, that can cause just as many issues for that person, doesn't matter what it is. You're carrying that baggage and it could be good baggage, it could be bad baggage, but the weight that you put on that, thought process if you don't then think about it from another perspective and then have someone say to you well it might not have meant that it might have meant that and you can think about it in a positive light but your cycle of introspective thought the whole time has been negative 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 it's interesting like how people are always slightly negative and then for someone just to click it out of you and say well we thought about it like this before and i'll be like no i haven't but now you've said that i'm free of that So it is the kind of mental journey that you need to take with meditation, with internal analysis, with psychedelics. doesn't matter really how you get there as long as you do it kind of thing. You just got to do it. And it takes a long time and some of it isn't pretty. And it's not for everybody, but it's massively beneficial. And really, Mm -hmm. if you want to arrive in like healthy personhood, healthy adulthood, you need to do it really. Life is a lot easier when you've got more of a healthy relationship with your internal world and you understand how you work a bit better. That's for sure. Love thyself. And it's a hard journey to go on sometimes when you can be a super critic. We have nothing to do it. Yeah, it takes a long time. But when we do, it's, it's hugely beneficial. I think for me, like we've mentioned Jordan Peterson quite a lot. I mean, I've got his 12 Rules for Life. It's a fantastic book. I think he's brilliant. I think he's criticized incorrectly a lot of the times for being honest and open about stuff but i think i'm definitely going to be investigating a few more things in quotes that he said i mean i really like the guy anyway so very very interesting but i just kind of want to wrap up with like going back to the meditation and the yoga and just get some maybe advice from you about 
how you might discover it yourself and get into the different elements of it, particularly the meditation and the yoga. It's not for some people. Who is it for? Who is it not? But if people want to gently get into it, how would you say their best route of access is to get there? Whatever the thing is that you want to do, that you want to be practicing or disciplined about, you know, whether it's, you know, going to the gym every day or playing five-a-side football, you know, a couple of times a week. It's just about having the discipline to do it regularly and going for it. Man, I think everybody, everybody needs to just take a step back and just slow down a bit, don't they? For the sake of themselves, for the sake of the fucking world at the moment, man. Literally, the world is burning hot on one side and super floods on the other from our individual and collective desire just for more and more stuff more quickly. We're killing ourselves and we're killing the world. It's empirically evidenced by all the you know scientific studies that have been done. So this is everybody make-believe stuff. We all need to slow down and take a step back, man, and look at ourselves, what we're doing to ourselves, what we're doing to the planet. Do you remember, I think you said to me, you know, it's all about this. It's all about gathering in and <laughs> looking down at your phone. And do you know what? I think there's actually more of a movement now, particularly on climate, but there's more of like, certainly in my friends group anyway, and this might not be true of everyone, but the advent of social media has made people look at their phones even more. But we should be looking up, not looking down look at the stars and find out where we are. And, you know, even watching the new Brian Cox documentary on Universe on BBC One, it's so awe-inspiring to think about stuff like that, even though we might not be able to make the journey unless we take the DMT to all these planets and stuff like that. I think the human culture really needs to have a look at itself and say, like, we're being driven by business and greed rather than looking after ourselves and this yeah. one planet that we've got. Absolutely. And the pandemic has highlighted all of that, really. I think it has. It's shown, it it's has. shown governments and corporations up and the top rich people up for what they're actually doing, the impact that they're having on the rest of us on the planet. You can't escape from it now. And, you know, we're pretty much at the last chance saloon, aren't we? I mean, this is it. This is uh, it. We are here now. Like, you have to make a change. I was determined not to go into my late 30s without like really reflecting on myself and mm. trying to be, take things on myself a bit more seriously. And humanity's at that stage now with the planet on which it's living. Let's put psilocybin in the water and then just do a big beach clean. I think that's what we need to dedicate our lives to. I'd love to do that. Get the plastics out. <laughs> You know, it's strange that I'm talking to you on a, an iPad, my laptop made out of plastic and all of this with all my power cables and stuff. Of metal mined by impoverished yeah. Sierra Leoneans. Yeah, thank you to Sierra Leone. I don't say that with any irony either because it's an unfair balance within the world. I think as individuals, we need to take a bit more responsibility. And I was like, well, what do I actually do? And my contribution to it is only buying an iPhone every four years. I think we can do more, you know? I think we can do more. Do you start with the individual? Or does it start with like a big uprising? So you got to start you've got to start with yourself, haven't you? We've all got to start looking at ourselves a bit more to start with. I think we and have then to. I'm definitely up for some direct action, which you're not yeah. even allowed to do now with the anti-protest law. Let's have a protest about the anti-protest law. That's yeah. where we can start fighting back. But yeah, I'm gonna wrap it up. Let's Chris, wrap it up, man. Just absolutely brilliant. Thank you for your time. It's always interesting speaking to you, whether it's with a beer, without a beer, yeah. in person, 
online for the first time, but I really enjoyed it. And thanks for your time. And obviously, if uh, we can have another chat again at some point, we Let's talk about it. skateboarding. Absolutely. We could talk about, I mean, how many topics could we cover? Everything. A deep dive would be good. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Love you, bro. Speak to you soon. Love you, mate. Take care.